This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Heeves. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. We're here to become better habitat managers. I'm your host, Jared Van Heeves. Thanks so much for joining us once again, guys. It is two days before Christmas, and we have an awesome episode for you here today. We hop on with Brian Hallbly, the co-host, see what he's been up to this past hunting season. And then we also catch up with our friend Al Tomeshko. Al's been on here three or four times. Um, and we talk about his successful season in southeast Ohio. We talk about this nice five-and-a-half-year-old buck he killed, um, locked on a doe and a food plot. We talk about why he thinks, you know, we or we think he killed it there in terms of the habitat around there, you know, bedding, wind, food. We talk about all those things, how they play into this successful hunt, this game plan, if you will. We talk about um, some tips and tricks, um, you know, with shooting and aiming. Just a little thing we like to call enjoy the process of aiming. That was something we discussed for a while on here, and uh, it's just a great podcast. We tell some fun stories. We're catching up, we talk habitat, we talk hunting, and uh, it's really good, interesting conversation. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. Now I want to thank everyone who is, you know, going to our website, reading the new blog posts up there, um, checking out our podcast, hitting us up on Instagram, Facebook, um, our new group, Habitat Chat. 
not so new anymore. There's like 2,200 members in there, but uh, it's a heck of a group. If you're not on Habitat Chat, I urge you to go check it out on Facebook. Um, there are way more knowledgeable people than me on there sharing their information, and we love to have these great conversations on there. But we, I just want to thank everybody who's contributed this year and, um, you know, on our media, watched us, followed us, liked us, subscribed. We truly appreciate you, especially the people leaving the good reviews uh, on Apple iTunes where we're sending the free five-inch podcast decals to. You know, leave us a good review. Thank you very much. We do send free decals. So thank you all for that. Um, I just want to you know, say Merry Christmas. So we're going into, you know, the time we're going to thank our, our God and our Savior, and I'm really pumped up to just enjoy the next, three, four days, you know, just with the family. Um, actually got out tonight with my daughter and shot a nice big doe. So feeling pretty thankful around here. actually um, donated that to a, a friend of ours who uh, wants to make jerky but doesn't hunt. So now uh, there's plenty of nice venison and, um, you know, feeling pretty good. It's a good time of year. Just, um, you know, hold your family close and, and have yourself a Merry Christmas. Uh, I want to thank our Sponsors, before we get right into this episode here, I want to thank Packer Max Sculpted Packers, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Exodus Trail Cameras, The Squirrel at NutPlanter.com, Afflictor Broadheads, Morse Nursery, and Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction. We appreciate you partners more than you know, so thank you so much. Um, and if anybody is still... Uh, Looking for any last-minute gifts, I did uh, post up a new blog post at HabitatPodcast.com. Last-minute gift ideas for the Habitat Manager. Uh, it might be a little late getting it for Christmas now, but um, maybe you can claim you you had some delay in shipping like everybody else is doing this year. So, uh, Guys, enjoy yourself. Enjoy your family. Merry Christmas. Unless you didn't do it with Brian and Al catching up in Southeast Ohio. Oh, baby. Go time. What's up, Brian? What's up, Al? What's happening, hey, buddy? How's it going, buddy? Not bad. Just wrap it up. You know, some notes today, and I'm going to try to swing out here and maybe go hunting with my daughter tonight. But I wanted to get you guys down here and catch up, see how the season's been going, get some stories out of you, end-of-the-year type stuff. So, what you guys been up to? Brian, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, nope. Just a uh, week of Christmas, trying to get caught up with everything that we got to do for that. And I got some uh, in-laws coming in for a couple days. They're flying in uh, tomorrow, I believe. And uh, yeah, just been kind of relaxing this last uh, week or so. I started vacation last week, and I'll be off to the end of the year. Was hoping to get back down to the lease for a couple of days for the second gun season, but just didn't work out. It's been a, a rough couple of weeks, as you guys know. I had some uh, personal tragedy with a good friend of mine that passed away at 52, and uh, just been kind of recovering from that and trying to get through that and get ready for the holidays. But uh, lots of hunting season left. And, you know, Ohio goes till February, so we'll be uh, hitting it here soon if we can get some cold weather. Yeah, man. Sorry to hear about your old partner there, obviously. Um, Appreciate that. No, we all said that before, but yeah, again, condolences. Thank you. Um, 
And then, so February, are you planning on hunting until the bitter end in February to fill that Ohio buck tag? Yeah, so with the food that we have down there between the uh, food plots and the feeders, you know, if we can get some really cold weather, it's going to get those mature bucks moving more in daylight again. They're starting to revert back to their uh, early season patterns and uh, not moving too much during daylight right now. So just need some cold weather to change that, and we'll be getting after it. Nice. You did have some success down there. I don't think we've talked about it on here yet with uh, Dave and his buck, right? Yeah, yeah, really nice three-year-old buck that we've been watching all summer. Uh, had a couple close encounters with him. I did as well as Dave. Uh, oh, you saw that thing. buck too from, yeah. the, from the stand? Oh, yeah. nice. Yep, just, uh, just out of bow range. Um, and then he was coming into that one stand on that south piece pretty regularly. On cam- And it seemed like every time nobody was there, he'd walk past that stand in daylight. It, it was just, you know how it goes. Everybody has those same issues. But uh, Dave actually sat there one day during archery season. That must have been, uh, I think that was, you had left, I think. I don't think you were there when he hit that buck. But that buck I, came I in. There with, yeah, I wasn't there with Dave at all, actually. So Okay. Yeah, so that was uh, somewhere early November. That buck came in, and he got a shot at it and ended up deflecting off of a multiflora rose limb, one of those real thin green ones that you can't see from the stand. But once he got down there, he was able to figure out that his arrow deflected and uh, didn't know where he hit the buck. We found some blood, but uh, after some grid searching, he found a couple of specks of blood like – I think he said 250 yards from the hit, so we knew that buck wasn't mortally wounded. And then uh, as luck would have it, and uh, good for Dave, we were all super happy that he got another crack at it first day of gun season. That buck come back in, and we were able to check out the wound. Uh, it was on that right shoulder that he had shot at. It just deflected down, just hit below almost – didn't even penetrate like like the pictures that I sent to you guys. It might have been like two or three inches. It might it might have just like barely broke the skin and kind of oh. like like bounced off or passed through that bottom piece. But uh, yeah, it was cool that he got some closure on that because th- that buck kind of disappeared. And we ended up finding some pictures on some of the cameras later that we got after that archery shot. But uh, it's kind of a unique shaped buck in different angles you guys know how it goes with those cameras you you get a buck on the ground and you're like what buck is this and then you got to like break it down to what features the, the rack had especially in a place like that lease we have so many deer that look similar mm-hmm. and uh ended up being able to close the book on that so that was pretty exciting that's awesome and that was um did you shoot it and kill it both on the, on the south piece yes so we made a move. Um, we were talking about moving a stand down from that stand we kept seeing him at because, you know, he would pass by that stand pretty regularly, but it seemed like he was preferring that cover to the south of that stand. So we thought, you know, thought we ought to get a stand down in there somewhere and uh, did some uh, last-minute scouting during the season and found a really nice scrape line and a rub line in there along that thicket just inside the cover, probably 
I think that stand he killed it out of in the rifle was or in, in gun season was maybe 60 yards from the other stand. So it wasn't much of an adjustment, but it was it was the right one. Wow! And the stand that you that he shot it from was that the stand that you hung? The first time he shot? Yeah, 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 yeah. That that was one that I set based on uh, the previous year. Uh, okay. Listeners might remember we got that lease in October of last year, and I never hunted it, uh, or not. Yeah, October of last year. I'm thinking it's 22 already. I'm getting ahead of myself here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I had some cameras around the property, and I ended up leasing it out to three other guys and never hunted it. But that that stand was hung based on that intel from the previous year. Very cool. Very cool. Well, congrats to him, and congrats to you guys for making a good move on that and filling a tag and and uh, gun season there. That's a heck of a buck. What what it was about. 140 somewhere in there or what what do you end up going yeah just shy uh rough score was uh 139 from what we got but uh you know we weren't using any type of official tape measure or anything so that's super gross and rough but sure yeah that's what we're trying to do down there somewhere around 140 and up uh beautiful three-year-old buck i mean i'm not passing that thing there's not too many people that are going to pass that buck uh it's it's easy to say you know you're in miss kingdom county Let's let some of those three-year-olds get the four and five, but it's a different story when they're walking past you. So, Well, the skunk is out of the box on the lease, and, uh, you know, in terms of bucks, and, and it's a nice one to boot, so well done. Yeah, absolutely. Super happy for him. And he, he wasn't the only one that had some success. You shot a couple of those so far, and then Al, what's up, dude? Hey, yeah. Um well, it's been pretty fun season uh, so far. I mean, the last couple seasons have been a lot of fun. And, um, yeah, I was fortunate to, to harvest a pretty good deer on November 3rd. Um, so every year takes some, takes some vacation time and try to hunt, you know, four or five days in a row um, is kind of typically you know, what we plan to do. And, um you know, one of the things that I've learned after hunting in the farm for so many years is using camera intel, but also in in November, um, you just kind of have traditional history of, of the farm and, and where deer like to be. Um, and also make sure that your wind is right. So, like... 2019 is kind of when my story starts, and that year, you guys have seen a picture of this buck, but my cousin killed a really nice, heavy eight-point. I mean, he has, you know, coke can bases, and he was a really nice deer. And what was funny about that particular eight-point is I had him on camera as a three-year-old in that same field, and I had him on camera I think the last time I had a picture of him was like September 29, 2019. November 1st, it was either October 30th or November 1st in 2019. Most guys will remember this in the Midwest. He had a crazy cold front. It was like 60 degrees, and it went down to like 20s in the evening, like over a one- or two-day period. Um, and we just saw a pile of deer, and, and my cousin ends up shooting that buck. We hadn't seen him for what would that be, like six weeks? 
Not one picture of that deer for six weeks. But what we did know is that he had, it was weird because we had a big cold front coming through, but he had a south wind. Um, so the wind was still coming out of the south, but the cold front was moving in like overnight. So the temperature was dropping. It was just a really unusual, um, normally, you know, south wind brings warmer air, but it wasn't the case this year. And he had the wind perfectly in his face. And that buck came up out of his bottom chasing does, and my cousin Zach killed him. Um, the next week, we had a north wind in, in pretty good conditions, and I passed a short G2 10 point um, on November 3rd, 2000. No, that must have been the same week. I'm sorry. It was like November 3rd, 2019. Um, so it was a day or two later. I passed a short G2 10 point um, and really was itching to shoot the deer because my cousin just killed one. You know, we're riding on his high. I'm like, man, this is crazy. And um, I actually sat through a rain front um, in a tree stand and I don't have a blind on that part of the farm, but the wind was so perfect. It was north wind um, and it's just bulletproof access for north wind on this field. And, uh, I was sitting there, and I knew the rain was going to let up like 4.15, 4.30. So I got up there early, and I saw a couple of does and stuff. And um, it was just one of those days that's raining with your head. You're just looking down like, this sucks. But I knew it was going to let up. And sure enough, as soon as that rain let up in 2019, um, that day I had that buck pop out of a thicket and had actually the wind in his face, but – the way that this stand is set up, it's basically, as, as you guys know from hunting uh, eastern and southeastern Ohio, the hills, like the deer can't really come directly behind you on a north wind. So he kind of came from like the northwest. So he still had the wind to his favor, but it's really splitting the difference there because my wind's carrying straight off into a bottom, um, going towards an area they can't really come from. There's a road and, and some other things there. So they can come from that general direction but not dead downwind on the north um so he came in and i had him at eight yards and i watched him and i watched him and um i just couldn't get myself to shoot him you know, i was looking at his body and um he had a pretty nice rack but nothing to write home about so i hunted the rest of that season really hard and, and just i uh, didn't end up killing a, a buck in 2019 shot a few does had a pretty nice season but passed just like the most i think i did a facebook post on it actually and I passed more bucks than I think I'd ever passed that year. And, and, um, and just to reiterate where you're at exactly, not exactly, but you're in southeast Ohio, right? Family farm yeah, that you're on. Yep. Yeah. Family property. Yeah, it's rugged terrain, you know, um, no ag around. So it's big timber. Um, you know, there's, there's not even a soybean field within 20 miles probably. I mean, it's, it's very, very just big timber, oak flats, clear cuts, um, food plots. And, and we, I mean, I'm not going to sugar, sugarcoat it. Like, we have a good um, situation going with our neighbors. You know, I'm not going to try to make it seem like we don't. I mean, we have close to 2,000 acres of neighbors that are all on the same page trying to shoot 140 pluses. Uh, so, basically, I know every neighbor within two square miles um, and have good nice. relationships with them. And, uh, I mean, it takes a long time. You can do a podcast just on how that went from, you know, we owned quite a bit less acreage, and over the years we've added to it, but um, how we went from not knowing any, hardly anybody to knowing more people to educating more people. And we don't have a technically a co-op, but 
it's a really good neighborhood relationship and it continues to grow. Um, I just got off the phone last week with one of my neighbors for like an hour. Like that's, nice. that's how, you know, yeah, kind of rapport that we have. Um, and I think it's extremely critical to manage deer to have those type of relationships, even from a doe harvest perspective. Um, so with that being said, we got a good thing going um, as far as that goes. We have consistently good deer. I wouldn't say great deer, um, but we have consistently good deer um, year in and year out. So, yeah, I mean, 2019 was a great year. Last year, obviously, was, was an awesome year um, for me. That was actually on a different property. Uh, that I have permission to hunt, and I killed that deer opening morning, um, had him patterned, and was, it was fortunate to, to do that. It just worked out. Um, so this year, I was pretty excited. I mean, no bucks were harvested off the farm last year. And, your and, cousin you know, moved away, right? Your cousin, the, the killer, he moved yeah. further yeah, away. So he moved back to Maryland, which is where he grew up in uh, okay. northern Maryland, beautiful area. Uh, he moved back, and... Um, Last year, we got to do a little bit of hunting together, but uh, not a ton, um, you know, and on that 2,000 acres, there was only, there was quite a few doe shot. Um, there was probably like 20-some doe shot, but there was only like two bucks on 2,000 acres that I know of. Now, there could be some additional properties here and there that shot one or two, but there's 2,000 acres there that I know only two bucks, and they're all connected in, in one way or another. Um, so I knew going into this year, it, it should be a pretty good year for deer numbers as well as, um, as buck numbers. And, uh, you know, fast forward to November 3rd, I knew I had a north wind. Um, I went to this field that, you know, people have probably seen me talk about it before. I call it High Point. It's up on a logging deck, or previously it was a logging deck, and surrounded by thicket um, on three sides, essentially. And I was able to get up there pretty early. I got up there about 2.30. Um, are you coming up, like, the back side of that steep part you're I'm talking not, about? I'm so, not. So how are you accessing that area that's kind of hard I to access? I actually come from the the – northernmost side however that field is shaped like an L and we left when we came in and cleared that field off we left like a hedgerow and a trail that separates that L so instead of just making it like a big square and then another like two rectangles it makes it an L because we left the hedgerow say like instead of making the field 100 yards wide we made it 75 yards with 25 our hedgerow in a small little path that sneaks all the way down it. So what I'm able to do is cut right down that trail so I can bring the four-wheeler down, park it by this gate, jump out, and, you know, the road, it's not, honestly, it's not that far off the road. So that's something else. Like, I think for me, it's like I would rather get in there quick, get set up, not push any deer off the field. The deer here, cars and trucks and four-wheelers, you know, on occasion, it's a, it's a pretty rural area, but it's not like they don't hear gas guys go by or something like that on a four-wheeler. So me running a four-wheeler down, pulling off the road, pulling it in where it can't be seen from the road anymore and, and cutting it off isn't something that a deer is going to hear from 100 yards away and go, whoa, that's really weird. Like, that happens all the time. So I kind of have taken the stance from hunting that particular stand of, just get in there as quick as possible. You know what, of course, do the scent-free thing. I come in from the north. I walk right down that hedgerow or the opposite side and basically pop out of that stand. I only have to take probably 
three to five steps into the actual field between that hedgerow and where my stand is. Wow. So I cut one small spot. I do wear knee-high rubber boots, um, as always, and I'll be honest, I've never had a deer cut my track coming out of that thicket crossing that, that spot there. Now, they come from the other area a lot. I think it would be far more risky trying to come up the north stuff. It's so steep that the amount of energy you would be expending and scent from just breathing alone, I think, would be super detrimental. Um, and I also don't know what a north wind would do as it drops down that slope because I don't think it's going to be a true north. I think you'd have a high likelihood of it swirling back into that thicket. Oh, or if you're on top, it's going to be much more of a true wind. Um, I don't know that for certain. I've never tested it, but that's what's always been my theory in that particular spot. There are some other spots that we hunt, like that are good for a south wind, and basically we do enter with the wind in our face the entire time. Um, the trick to those spots typically, though, is you got to get in even earlier, you know, because if it's down in a like on a flat ridge, the one field we call ridge. Like if we're hunting that, you're not you're getting in there at one thirty at the you know or, or latest, excuse me. Just because um, you have a little bit of a walk to get in there, and even though the wind's in your face, you know how those deer are in Southern Ohio. They don't have um, one way that they travel every day. You know, every day they come from something. No way, they come from every direction. So sometimes even in those spots where the wind's in your face the whole time, uh, to combat that as long as you know you have a good wind forecast, is to get in there a little bit early so you don't jump any deer going in. Um, but, yeah, I mean, so I got into that stand, and I'll be honest, it, it, a lot of it's just pure luck. I mean, I got in that stand. I had um, – I got a cell camera on that field. I got a, quite a few cell cameras up. Um, so I had been seeing a few bucks on that field that I was very interested in in – harvesting potentially um, one really wide eight point um, that I had seen actually last year I had a history of that deer um, and there was a couple other deer deer in there that I've been liking but that eight point had actually been in there a few times in daylight over maybe a month period I figured November 3rd good wind direction I'm not going to bust anything first sit at the at the well second sit at the farm for the year but first sit for my vacation time I'm going to go in and I got in there, and I swear to you, I wasn't in the tree for two hours. And it's like 4.15, and off to that thicket, which would be, well, to my left, I will say that, um, I caught a glimpse of something moving, and I caught a glimpse of antler um, right after something else moved. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's kind of exciting. Let's see what happens here. You know, pretty um, – looked pretty decent, you know, from what I could see, but you're always like, yeah, right, I'm probably just telling myself that. And uh, I look out into the, the field at about 80, 85 yards, and here this this doe pops out. And I'm like, all right, you know, cool. And I can hear something moving, but I'm just kind of watching her. And um, sure enough, this buck pops out right after, uh, maybe a minute later. And I immediately kind of was like, all right, that's pretty good deer. And I'm, like, super critical, um, and especially on, on the farm. Like, that's just – I spend so much time there, and I, I just am really um, critical. So I'm, I'm looking at the deer, and I grab my phone, and I start filming him for a while. And I, I'm texting – I think I texted Brian and Sam, and I texted uh, Danny and Zach. And 
this buck's still at 80 yards. It's not like I'm, you know, and oh, and I text my cousins that too. I go, ah, you know, what do you guys think? And everybody like came back and was like, are you crazy? <laughs> Shoot that deer. Like, especially, you know, like Sam and Danny in particular, because I feel like Brian and, and my cousin Zach, they just want to see something die. But like, uh, Danny and, and Sam, when both of them were like, dude, you probably, you better shoot that deer. I'm like, gosh, damn, this dude from Illinois is telling me to shoot this deer. Like, I better, I better reconsider this. So I decide, like, all right, you know, I, and then I start really looking at his body and I'm like, these guys are right. Like, his body's really big, which shame on me. You know, I kind of got the excitement of the, the moment and I was looking at his rack more and, and I should have been, with my own management goals, studying his body, I think a little bit more in the in the beginning, but it happened so quick, you know. And I was fortunate to have that time. And I looked and looked and looked, and I'm like, man, he's got a big belly, you know, and, and definitely has a sway in his back. And start looking at him closer, and I'm thinking, do I know that deer? You know, he's still at 80 yards, and I'm not going to screw around with my binos and stuff. I'm like, I'm not, you know, this stand is like quadruple trunk maple, but uh, I just wasn't going to try to screw it up any more than I normally can. So I figured I'd just sit there and wait. And uh, again, you know, I, I shoot a lot, um, as all of us do. You know, I shoot heck in the summertime, sometimes twice a day. I mean, I shoot a lot. This year was a little less because of just having the baby and everything. But uh, I, I'm, I really, really, really study, as you guys know, the anatomy of deer, and I'm just really uh, critical of myself and shooting. Um, often, but I also know that things can go wrong in real world situations. And that deer came in, and that doe was still at 85 yards, and he kind of was browsing a little bit. On, I got a bunch of way mix in there, but he was browsing on some of the hairy vetch and rye grain, but not real hard. Just like it was almost like trying to keep himself busy, you know. Yeah. And uh, he came to 25 yards, and I'm released and hooked on, and, and he's slightly quartered too and at that point I was like all right that's a pretty good deer and I'm like I'm just not going to shoot this deer quarter too um in another area of the farm maybe I would but just the way that that sets up and stuff and the area that he was in in the field I'm thinking I'm going to hit that deer he's going to run into that nasty thicket down a, a south facing slope have to cross the road like I just there's a lot of ways to lose the blood there um on a quarter two shot unless you totally pinwheel him and I just, again, was probably being overly analytical, but I passed him at that time because I said, I'm not going to force that shot. Uh, so he turned around and kind of, of course, I'm thinking, oh, he's going to turn broadside, you know, and I just passed on that shot opportunity. I didn't pass him. He ended up turning and seeing that doe, and he got a little bit irritated that he had kind of wandered so far away. I think he got irritated himself, you know, so he charged back towards her. And I thought, well, that'll be the one that got her. And, uh, yeah, I mean, she kept feeding, and he kind of stood there and, and watched her. And uh, as the good Lord would have it, I mean, she ended up just feeding within eight yards of my stand. Um, he came down, and as big bucks will do, it's so funny, he came on a string following her um, until he got to about 30 yards from me. And even though he knew that doe was hot, and he had been with her for, I mean, I watched him at this point for 45 minutes. It's probably 5 o'clock, and this is before the time change, right? It's only November 3rd. So I've watched this deer for a long time. It's, it's sunny as it is outside right now. You know, I mean, 
it was a really beautiful day, and uh, he still circled downwind of that deer. Now, I'm still downwind of him, right, but he still came on that deer to about 30 yards and then did a big circle, like, one more time to get downwind of her. So now he's facing me, like, quarter two again. Then he turns and he's facing me directly, and I'm sitting there just waiting to draw. And, oh, it felt like forever, but it was pretty yeah, like How long of a time frame has this gone on for? I mean, at, at least at this point, it's 45 minutes in. Wow. I mean, I've been watching this dude for, um, for at least 45 minutes. And Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was just like, holy cow, like, are you going to let me kill you or what? You know, or at least give me a chance. And, um, yeah, I mean, I was just really blessed. He ended up turning. He started walking. Uh, towards this doe, and she kind of started getting like she was going to run, and I know he was going to chase her. You know, he had started grunting when she started putting space between. He started getting a little agitated, awesome. and um, and he, by the way, he was totally locked down with that doe. I would bet every dollar I have in my wallet that he had bred her multiple times, and it was just a function of being lucky and being in the right place at the right time with a buck locked on a doe. Like, that was not pre-rut chasing he was locked onto that note on November 3rd, and I just happened to be lucky in the right place. But um, he went to push her again. She took a couple steps. Uh, he turned broadside. I drew, um, and I'm on the Ohio Outdoors forum, and there's a guy on there, uh, Brock is his name. He's a really good archer. His son's killed a pile of big deer. Um, I've been on there for years and years, and I remember he made a comment. I think it was on the forum or Facebook one day. And he said, uh, I think it's enjoy the process of aiming. And I just said, it, it always resonated with me because, you know, we do all this practice and then we want to enjoy the, the you know, grip and grin. But it's like, I want to enjoy the process of aiming. Like, it really stuck with me. And I said a quick, I said a quick prayer to my grandpa. I'm like, grandpa, if this is meant to be, please make me fast and accurate. And I drew, and I thought of Brock saying, enjoy the process of aiming. I uh, anchored that pin awesome. and shot. I thought the shot was a touchback, just to be totally brutally honest. I, I was like, ooh, I think that was a touch. And I thought it was a touch higher than I wanted. But he had gotten so close at that point. And I, this stands up there. I mean, it's probably 20 to 25 feet. I mean, it's it's a good ways up this tree. and um, I was in my initial reaction. I watched Arrow Barry through him, and I thought, "Ooh, that might be a touch back, you know." But I think I'm good. And then when he turned and was running again, I was fortunate to be in that spot because I could watch him away in that field, and I could just see blood pouring out of the other side. So at that point, I'm like, "Okay, I I double lunged him, and I'm hanging as I'm hanging my bow up. I'm listening, and I heard him crash within, you know, seconds of shooting." Um, but you still are always like, oh, you know, I don't know. And, and it's just amazing that those deer can cover because he probably still went about 150 yards in, wow. in seconds, in seconds. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was an absolute, uh, wonderful time. And, and, you know, come to find out after, after getting, uh, getting him out and getting him back to the barn and everything, um, that he happened to be that short G210, uh, from two years ago. Um, and I passed that deer out of the same stand almost to the date two years prior. Um, I'd be lying if I told you I went in there to kill that deer. I wish I was that good, but um, this year with having a 
six-month-old baby, I mean, I promised my, my wife and my family, I said, if I get a chance at a mature deer, I'm killing it. You know, years passed, I've been really, really picky, and I just said, if I get a chance at a mature deer, I'm killing it. And, um, I'm so happy I did. I mean, it just made, it just was like a story that kept getting better and better. And um, to add a couple of cherries on top of the story, so my grandpa died June of 2020. He lived a really good long life, but him and I were really, really close. And I would, no matter where I was in the state of Ohio, I'd go and see him and bring a buck to him. And I'd always be like, oh, I'd dang my truck up. You know, he'd come out and he'd be like, oh, you got a buck. You know, or my cousin Zach and I would do the same thing. And we always would do the same trick. And we had a few days off there, so we hung the deer up. It was cold and didn't plan this at all. But it just so happened that my wife was a trooper. She jumped up in the truck and took pictures of my son and I with my buck. And I started looking at the pictures after she took them. I looked at the date and I said, it's November 6th, which was my grandpa's birthday. Wow. So it still happens that the new tradition was started with my son as he's six months old. It happened to land exactly on grandpa's birthday with a pretty darn nice buck. And then, uh, of course, sending in the teeth for cementomania, aging, and uh, just getting that confirmation of him being a, a five-and-a-half-year-old deer, uh, because deer do have similarities, you know, and you can be like, ah, oh, I'm pretty damn sure. But to get that confirmation, um, honestly, I felt like it was like I shot the deer all over again. I mean, it just really, really felt um, great to have that done. So really good season um, so far. And then I shot a doe opening day, a shotgun, or uh, yeah. gun season in Ohio, which that was amazing. I mean, I got uh, set up at 7.30, and I was back at the house by 8.30 cooking breakfast. I mean, it was <laughs> Gotta <laughs> love it when a plan comes together. Yeah, it's been a really, really good, really lucky, fortunate season for me. Well, congratulations. That was yeah, a congrats, heck of a buck. Um, I know you sent, the, you sent the teeth in and all that, right? You got it aged, and it was yeah. a true mature deer. Yeah, yeah, I came back at five and a half certified, um, you know, and they show you how they count the, the rings and stuff. And, you know, cement manually aging isn't 100%, but, like, nothing is going to be 100%. But sure. Yep. To put it into perspective, I mean, that deer weighed 185 pounds dressed. So for a deer in Appalachia, that is a pretty darn heavy deer. And I'm sure oh, yeah. like, oh, I've killed, especially in an area of Appalachia with no ag. Right. None. You know, you could get into some areas of Athens County and stuff where you could have a few hundred acres of, of ag still. But in our area, there's no ag. And for that deer to be dressed out at 185, 184 pounds, I think point something. Um, I was really impressed with that. I mean, it was, it took my cousin Zach and I just bought everything we had to get that deer. Because we will always got them, if we can, back at the barn. Because we got lights, we got water, it's just easier. Right. And it was one of those where we were like, uh, we we might just have to gut him here because it was a son of a gun to drag him even 100 yards. So when I got that weight back, I was like, mm, pretty sure this deer's fully mature. Uh, but then again, having that, those teeth age um, really made me realize, yeah, it was the deer that I thought he was, which is pretty Plus cool. the history you had with him, with the mm-hmm. pictures and the previous encounters. And yeah. you know, like you said, nothing's 100%, but, you know, with three or four different points of reference that you build up over the years, you know, there's a no no doubter in my mind that it's five and a half year old deer for sure. Yeah, and it was cool because you know we've talked about this, and I know it, it's funny because in 
in other properties I have to hunt that are just permission spots that are 10 or 11 acres, but a totally different area, um, you know, not big woods, more egg. The deer can be so much more uh, consistent, I would say. Not saying easier to kill, but consistent from a perspective of, like, on camera. That deer in 2019, he thought he was like a model. I had him in front of cameras all the time. You know, he loved it. I had one picture of that buck in 2020. Wow. And it was in, it was in the same stand, same field that I killed him out of. And it was in the middle of gun season week. So that particular area butts up to a huge, like almost a, uh, almost half of a square mile, actually over half of a square mile clear cut. So it's huge. So my thought is that deer felt pressure in 2019 or something, and for whatever reason, in 2020, he pretty much holed up in in that field. Um, similar to Brian's situation with Dave, I checked a couple cameras after I killed that deer. And this is why camera data, especially in November, is so hit or miss. The most frequent spot I had of that deer was in a food plot over half a mile away. Wow. So had I used that data and went to that particular spot, now the wind wouldn't have been ideal anyways, so I wouldn't have gone to that spot. Or years ago, maybe I would have. Um, but I wouldn't have seen that deer. So that was kind of some, some interesting um, information as well, you know. Um, and then on those pictures, it was cool because I could really study his body and, and, and stuff because, you know, still image, of course. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you could really see the sway in his back. You can't see that in naked eye. At least I can't. You know, in real time, when it's happening, you're trying to decide: should I shoot this thing in the lungs, or am I going to give it a you know, pass? <laughs> right, right. You know, it's, it's hard to see this way, but a still image that you can blow up, you can really see the, the belly sag and, and things of that nature. So, uh, so yeah, he, uh, it, it's been a really, really fun season. And I uh, appreciate you guys letting me come on and, and share the story. Yeah, I have a couple questions um, about both of you guys' hunts, actually, uh, or, or the least, and then. Al's not here. Let's go with um with Al first since we're still on your, your story yeah. here. Yeah, I got a couple questions to follow up on you, so go with that. Awesome. awesome. What um the clear cut I heard, I'm trying to just put together in my brain or have you tell me what made that spot at that time perfect for, for this hunt. I know yeah, he was locked on a doe, so maybe we're talking about the does here. Why did they like being there? Um, what do you have planted? Let's hear about a rundown in the general area of why you think you were successful in terms of habitat management and what types of habitat you were in. So going back to last year and this year and Zach's buck in 2019, um, if there's one consistent variable in all of those, it's wind direction. And so that's number one. I mean, you can have your habitat as good as anywhere in the Midwest, right? It could be the best farm in the whole Midwest. And if your wind is wrong, I'd say the odds of you killing a, a mature deer is probably less than 5%. You can have it. I always believe because I've got, oh, it came right down, down wind, dumber than hell, and I shot it. It does happen, but if there's one thing we are, and it's changed. I mean, five, I'd say six years ago 
it was like, oh, we got this good farm, and we would see deer, so it's like, we equated that to, you know, well, our wind's good enough, our scent control's good enough, type of thing. Um, the more serious we got about stand placement based on likely wind direction, so I have stands that I don't care what my cameras are saying. If it's a south wind, I'm not hunting that stand. Just, just ain't going to happen. Yeah. Because I would blow every deer out of that field and or educate them, even if they're there and they don't come in. Oh, I saw him, but he stayed at 80 yards. So number one would be wind direction. Um, <clears throat> number two is definitely proximity to bedding. Uh, so a good food source in an area that is lacking food sources, right? So um, what do you have in big timber countries is food sources or, or lacking food sources. I mean, your primary food source is going to be browse, you know, so multiflora rose, green briar, you know, woody browse, things like that, at least in the hunting season. Of course, you have ragweed and stuff. You do have some, some mature hay fields. You have some pipeline easements that tend to have a lot of clover alfalfa and, and things like that. Um, but in general, high-quality food plots in that type of scenario can be extremely deadly. Um, I mean, we've killed a pile of deer over food plots, and um, I have no issue saying that. I continue to work on the soil health of those fields, which it does seem to make them more and more and more attractive. Um, Interesting. The proximity on that particular field to, well, it's a couple things, right? So in our area, and Brian could probably relate to this on the lease, although I don't think I've seen a, I've seen aerials, but I don't think I've seen a topographical map of the lease, but you don't just have this overabundance of clear open space, right? Like, I envy when I see a guy like, oh, I got a 300-acre farm and I got 200 <laughs> acres of tillable because I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, you know, and some guys are like, sucks because I got to do half of it in CRP or something. It's like, yeah, but, you know, for me, like, I do 10-plus acres a year, two times a year I plant. So I plant over 20 acres a year of food plots. But it had, I mean, we had a claw and grind to get those 10 acres, you oh, know, yeah. right. because you just, you just don't have the open space. So from a habitat management perspective, if you want to focus on your herd health, it's take the spots that are open and make them, make them food plots, assuming you have enough bedding and stuff, which around us, you're not liking that. Probably, there's probably over a thousand acres of, of clear cuts within a, within a, uh, a square mile. Wow. So around us, like, I'm not going to really compete on a betting aspect. Now, they do bet on our farm a lot because of train features, but that's another, another story, especially bucks and things. We'll bet up on these ridges where they can look down um, and not necessarily in the thickest areas, some of these oak ridges and oak flats and such. But what I found is um, there's two different types of food plots that we have, feeding food plots and hunting food plots. So this particular field happens to be both. It's, it's two-ish acres, maybe a little bit more, um, and it happens to be very close to a massive clear cut, and it happens to be an area where it's up on top of a ridge where your wind is true. Right. So because of that, you kind of get this trifecta of it's a good feeding location, 
where just deer in general can feel very safe as, as, as well as bucks because they can pop out of these clear cuts and be in this field. But they're never more than, I mean, I don't know, four or five jumps from being back into a thick wooded bottom and then into a half a square mile clear cut. You know, that, so because of that and because of the access, because of the constant wind uh, in that spot with the north wind, it makes it just a really killer spot. Um, what I found, though, is there, it's, it's inconsistent. I mean, there's a lot of does that go there. But if I told you, oh, I was going to go there because I knew does were going to come and a buck was going to chase, I'd be bullshit. Um, what I did know is that over the years, deer frequent that area, be it does, be it singular bucks cruising through there, um, be it just a group of does. Like, all I know is deer are constantly, it's like a revolving door, and I think that has a lot to do with the proximity to the bedding, um, sure. the thick bedding areas. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the uh, the area. What I have planted, I think, is the only question I might not have asked. Um, and what I mean, I, I'm really into the, the soil health movement. This could be a laundry a laundry list, right? Of what I, you I, I won't list everything. I have about, um, <laughs> it's about 13 to 15 different species. In there. Very nice. Um, and the primary goal is, of course, to balance your carbon and nitrogen ratios. So in the spring, a lot of times you're planting, um, well, you're trying to make up for your rye grain that had grown all fall or grown all fall into the spring. And then if you plant in the spring, you're planting maybe more um, heavy carbon items like a sunflower. Uh, buckwheat isn't too high of carbon, but um, I would imagine it's higher than clover. I don't know off the top of my head. Um, and so on and so forth, right? Maybe sorghum, things like that. Uh, corn could be something. And then, of course, in the fall, planting something to create, you know, tubers and then to balance that out. So there's hairy vetch, which I love. Um, absolutely love hairy vetch. There's I have like four or five different brassicas. Rye grain, triticale oats, and a bunch of clover mixed as, as well. Um, and it's grown really well and the deer have ate the snot out of it. I mean, it's the exclusion fences are just, it's unbelievable um, in comparison uh, to, to years before. That's awesome. Well, will have to get you on in the spring to talk, like to dive into the soil side of it. I've been wanting to do that with you. And I think spring, prior to spring planting, would be a good time to do that. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I can talk about it for a while. <laughs> so are there any other major changes besides soil health and trying to improve that plot that happened between when you've seen him in 2019 to 2021? Again, I mean, I, I hate to talk in absolutes, right? So if I'm talking about that specific deer, um, I don't want to – anybody who might be listening to this, I don't want them to think like, oh, man, he created this plan to kill that specific deer, and this is how he did it. Sure. Um, and then they're going to try to implement it on a specific deer that they have on camera, and there's just too many variables in that equation. But what we have done is it, pressure is so minimized on our farm. Um, and specifically, hunting pressure. And I think that gets often confused. Guys are, oh, I can't even enjoy my farm. I can't even cut firewood. You know, hell, I got a trail that's been blocked off for six months. I can't even clear it because if I run a chainsaw, somebody's going to know, you know. Deer are smart animals, but I think sometimes you give them a little bit too much credit in that sense. But for us, I will go grab a camera. 
You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not going to waste an opportunity to learn what's happening. What do the juries call it? Most recent MRI. Most MRI, yeah. And, like, I'm not going to blow an opportunity to learn most recent information because I'm so scared about what if I, I, I scare a deer, right? Like, no, I try to be smart about it. If I try to go in, if it's raining midday or – uh, if I happen to hunt a stand or I plan on hunting because the wind's right, then maybe I'm going to go in. Or maybe I go in well after dark and the deer don't even know, like, what the hell is this big thing? Looks like a UFO coming down with these LED lights on it, you know, coming in my Kubota. Like, and so I do do that, but the biggest change has been hunting pressure. I mean, in 2019 is probably when we made the largest shift where we just, were, I mean, we just don't hunt unless it's a perfect wind. I mean, there are stands that we have for a south wind, for example, or excuse me, a north wind, for example, that if you hunt, if you look at the cameras, and you just aren't going to have a ton of, you're, you're not going to be pumped to go sit down. But it comes down to, hey, you're either going to hunt that stand with, with bulletproof access, or we're just not going to hunt. We're going to sit in the camera, watch football, have a beer, whatever, because... <clears throat> We just don't think that it's – we've just seen it go the other way. We've just seen where deer turn nocturnal. And I can tell you in the last two years, we've seen – we've added more food, but the pressure is the biggest thing. We have seen more deer on camera in daylight than ever before. And, I mean, the numbers of deer um, – we got my – my little cousin got his first deer this year, 13, 12 or 13 – um, hell, I don't think he was in the blind for 35 minutes. I mean, I was like, they're going to come out, just be ready. And I got it. I'm like, you know, hadn't even opened a beer yet at the house. And they, they were like, got one. Like, wow. That, I mean, I'm, I'm starting to think, make people think I know what I'm doing. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, so that those are really the biggest changes. And the last thing I'll say about that, and this is very specific to Ohio. I know Michigan, or at least parts of Michigan, outlawed baiting. <clears throat> in Ohio, you can use bait. So those deer, if you're running bait and you have cameras on bait in particular, those deer are used to hearing a four-wheeler go in and refresh bait. So that's like a, hell, it's like a dinner bell. You can dump bait at 2 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, and you'll be getting pictures in an hour or two of does on it. So I think that, and it's hard to kill big bucks in Ohio. I, uh, who was the guy you guys had on from, he used to be on MLB Bowhunter. Or... Oh, Jeff? Jeff. You know, he talked about yeah. that. I mean, I, and I was just like nodding my head when he was talking, because he's like, you know, in Ohio, those deer, those big bucks will, will pick out that bait in a heartbeat. Now, of course, again, there's some that do get killed with a mouthful of corn, but yeah, sure. it doesn't always happen. And... I just want to mention that because whether you want to bait or not on your particular farm, there's probably somebody within that square mile or two square miles that some of these bucks travel that is. For sure. So don't think that a four-wheeler going in there to check a camera is going to, to screw it up, right? Um, so I'll even, in, in Ohio, because we can bait, if I have a camera that I'm checking that's over a food plot that doesn't have any, I don't have a feeder there, I don't have any bait there, sometimes I'll just throw a bucket of bait out 
just so they continue to associate that sound, I'll just throw two pounds of corn or, you know, pumpkin, just something. They continue to associate that sound with with um, comfort, you know, or food, I guess. Um, but, yeah, the biggest thing is, is picking a stand solely on wind direction. I mean, in, in access. I mean, that is – and it's hard to do, as you guys know. That In that part of the state, access is a son of a gun. Um, it's really hard not to hunt just the fresh side. But it's also really hard to trick those deer because they can just come from any direction. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with you, Brian, and I see it on, when we're visiting properties. It, it, access is, like, the number one thing. But also getting that person or yourself to follow the rules that you've created – Mm-hmm. is another thing too, right? Like you said a couple times, now, like, oh, the wind's kind of off, screw it. I'll go anyways. Yeah, I saw a deer. It was a win-win. But that's not, that's not the case. Right. Right. Well, and again, like we use um, set lock, uh, ozone. Yeah. I take every layer off. I don't cook eggs with my under layers on. Like we come in the basement door, every single thing comes off. They go in the ozone bag that night, they get ozone. The next morning, if we're hunting in the morning, it gets ozone. We come in from the morning, it goes back in that bag every layer. We don't sit around in our under layers, we don't fry it, like, you know, we, oh, and then we spray down as well. Like, I, it's hard to fool a deer's nose, but I try to take every step that I can to do so. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, and there's, there's guys that'll tell you, and they'll go out and kill bucks in their work boots and stuff, and you know, they do it, so it's it's possible. And I could see why guys don't get too hung up on scent control. But there's so much more. And like I even explained to a lot of my guys on my lease and other hunting buddies around here, there's scent that when you're not even in there hunting that you leave behind. There might be a buck that comes through at 3 o'clock in the morning and smells your access trail where you think no deer are even going to be. So I, I'm the same as you, Al. If it gives me a – a small, tiny percentage in my favor, I'm going to take the time to do it. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And uh, I don't know if you guys had Danny on to talk about this, but, you know, Danny bought a – it's not a Maverick blind, but it's it's similar to that style. I don't know if you've ever seen those, but they're like roto-molded. Yeah, I saw um, it on his YouTube channel. It's pretty sweet. But yeah. anyhow, you could have him because he's, he's hunting this one like basically a bottle. So without dragging this on too long, he has filled in every crack, you know, with talk. I mean, everything to make that thing, I, I think, and I don't want to misquote him, but I think he even said, like, when he opens the windows, you can almost have, like, a pop because it's so tight. Um, and that's one of the issues. You have to be real careful opening the windows. So if you swing it open, you'll get that pop and be, be in the next county. But uh, it's just something that I thought was really a cool idea to not only take your scent control to the next level, but sometimes the only way you're going to kill these deer is you've got to hunt them in these bottles. And it's like, I got two or three spots on the farm that I'm like, all right, you know, we've killed a couple bucks out of that stand. It's a good stand. But gosh, darn, if that wind's off just a hair, where the forecast mm-hmm. off a hair, that wind swirls like a son of a gun. And it's just frustrating. So, how many how many deer do you see the breweries killing out of tree stands anymore? Oh, I know. I mean, it's a great example. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, it's an absolutely great example. You know, I it, it, big thick uh, 
big thick farms with a huge food source in the, in, you know, the center and good access and those deer feel comfortable, you know, and uh, heck, Bill, Bill Winky kind of talked about that too on, on one of the episodes you guys had about how many yeah. they kill out of rednecks in these bottom feeding fields, you know, and uh, I think what was that one buck he called Lucky or something? It was a big like I don't know, it was eleven point or something, but yeah. uh, he, shot, he shot that deer at like forty yards or thirty eight yards out of that redneck in that bottom feeding field, and um, you know I remember being like, how is he containing his scent? You know, other than obviously the redneck and I've talked to some guys who own them, and they're like, they do work from a sense wow. of like they really yeah. do work as long as their access is good. Or you just sleep in them. That's that's what I heard Winky say recently. That he's spent <laughs> a night in a couple of them just so yeah. he doesn't have to leave any scent the next yeah. day. Unbelievable. Jake Ewinger was telling me one time uh, he has a a bank spline like you guys have, and um, he's got it sealed up real tight to where he had a heater in there one time. And the heater wouldn't even stay lit because there was not enough. It was burning up all the oxygen, and it wouldn't even stay lit. So he had to like. Uh, and I think him and Jim, Doctor Jim, I think they chimney their PVC pipe straight up, thirty, forty feet out of the blind, like a wind tower up there, and it catches a draft and sucks your air up and over. Um, so to your point, there's there's things that need to be done and can be done. Um, my I call my my blind the porta potty blind. That thing sucks. It's uh, <laughs> just wide open and and drafty, and um, I just hunt it with a good wind. But yeah, you can't screw around and go backwards on that. Um, yeah. These rednecks and these stump blinds, I think you might probably get away with more than what you could. Definitely in a tree stand, but definitely than a, a cheaper blind too. Yeah. Well, I think, awesome. uh, along well, with you have another question, Brian? No, I was just gonna follow up that. Uh, along with controlling the scent, you know, there's a lot of movement that's taken away from the deer too, because they're, you know, as as everybody knows, they could see the tiniest bit of movement. As we all know, being in a stand, you just like move your hand half an inch, and then the buck snaps his head up. So there's probably something to that too, with them you know, not being able point. to see the movement. That's a really good point, Brian. Too, and something I probably should give some credit to is. You know, learning from from guys and in, in my own mistakes is how we're hanging sets. You know, when we go in to hang a new set, um, trying to find that perfect tree. I mean, I remember just, ah, oh, that tree's good enough. You know, you're up there. You're not going to, you know, trying to find that back cover. Mm-hmm. And or. Um, triple trunk. Quadruple trunk, or or making something around. Like we've taken before, where we have like a triple trunk tree, and then for whatever reason, maybe somebody got busted out of a stand before or something, and we put like a piece of one by one between the two trunks and a piece of burlap over it and tacked it to it, and then left it up all year. Nice. All it does is it just breaks up when the deer look up, and you're only putting it, you know. I don't know, maybe waist tight. So it's not in the way when you're drawing or anything. But you do something like that and the deer look up and they get used to seeing that burlap up there and all they see when they look up is, oh, burlap. They don't see your upper half sitting above there while you're grabbing your bow. So there's little tricks that we've done like that that as long as your wind's true, um, from a visual perspective, that can help a lot too. Great information. Great information all the way around. All the way around. 
Yep. And, well, one, and one more point on while we're Do it. Bringing, up, bringing up things that uh, you mentioned, the, the slowing down your aiming and enjoying that process. I got to do that. That's um, something, like you said, we we're so focused on spending six months of the year getting the farm ready and then, you know, doing everything perfect leading up to the hunt. And that seems to go so quick because it happens so fast that we forget to slow ourselves down. So that was a great tip that you mentioned that you were, that you remembered that quote about enjoying the aiming process, because that'll help slow things way down when you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to enjoy this process here. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just like anything. Like you said, we spend all this time loving habitat. And how many times have you got to gun camp? I know I've had it happen before with guys. And you get to the gun camp, and the guy goes, oh, I haven't shot this gun in a few years. But I'm, I'm sure it was on the last time I shot it. And you're like, you waited all year. And you, and you <laughs> all year. Find one <laughs> afternoon, you know, to to make sure that that gun's on. You know, and it's, it's yep. just – and then, I'm, of course, that's the guy who gets a shot at the big buck. And, and he's like, oh, you know, I'm <laughs> And it's funny because it's the same idea. Like, or a coyote, I'm not saying yeah. any names. Or least. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just it's just something to enjoy that process of aiming. And, um, with with firearms especially, and bows a lot can happen, but with firearms especially, take a weekend, don't worry about the habitat, and make sure it's dead, you know, dead on. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> that's something I did this past year just having that additional confidence, knowing that that gun, you know, the barrel's bedded, I put a new vortex on, and just knowing that that gun is dead on and to heart shoot a doe at 80 yards opening morning of, and just watch her run 20 yards and flip over, you're like, huh, that was like almost easy. You know, just to have that confidence in a firearm, um, I think is really important. I think you guys both hit the nail on the head there. Um, enjoy the aiming get a shot process you know i started doing that with my bow last year um but one thing that i seem to remember uh our buddy kevin over at, at deer hunter podcast he said something that struck with me if you can learn to master that moment when your adrenaline is like through the roof and you're about to get that shot off and if you can learn to master that and enjoy it instead of freak out and flip out like i don't really do you know if you can control yourself during that moment it changes everything you know, if you can literally, for sure. Like think of like Al, you had 45 minutes or so before you shot that deer. I'm sure on minute 45 was a little bit different feeling than minute two, right? Like yeah. if you can control yourself or or just live in that moment and be able to know, like, all right, I'm a stone cold killer. This thing's done. Draw back, anchor, enjoy the the aiming process, and, and let it go. Versus, I got to get this thing shot right now or else. Mm-hmm. Two different things. And yeah. Great, great tip. I'm going to try to remember that myself. Yeah, enjoy that. I, I just, when I read that, I remember thinking, man, that is um, <clears throat> profound. I thought yeah. that is a really profound statement to just say enjoy the aiming process or enjoy the process of aiming. And, um, you know, I've been really fortunate, and I, I hope it can continue. And it's something that I will admit to everybody on this planet and the good Lord above it. I, for some reason, because I think I'm telling myself, enjoy the process, focus on the spot, aim. I have so many things going. I don't get real nervous when I go to shoot a deer. But even it could be an 80-pound yearling doe that I'm like, okay, don't man, shoot. After the shot, 
Oh my gosh, I call. Yeah. I can't even text. I can't even text like you know the texts are like this. Like you know what I mean? They're like on top of each other because I'm hitting Andrew too many times. And and <laughs> I, I just try to tell people because if you can slow down, I mean it, it does really make um, a huge difference. And the other thing I'll say on that is slow down when you're gutting the animal. That's one of the best things we ever started to do was gut those animals back at the barn and look at okay. Pull the lungs out and look, where did I hit this deer exactly? Yeah. You know, because like I said, I I got a little, oh, a little hard on myself. Oh, I wanted to tuck it a little bit closer, you know, and hurt you. Well, you're not going to hurt your deer. You're just right. not going to do it. You know, if he was right on that doe, he could have taken a half a step, whatever. And I pulled the lungs out, and it was through both of his lungs. Yeah. You know, and it almost the center, not even the back of both lungs. And I kind of go, okay, you know. Now I know the next time I shoot one in that same spot that even it might be not exactly where you want it, it's plenty good. And that's something that even with a, I mean, a gunshot doesn't matter. I try to slow down and analyze and evaluate what did I hit? What, or what did that arrow hit or bullet hit? Why did that deer react that way? Why did that deer go 150 yards? Both lungs. Why did it go? Well, likely because he was jacked up on testosterone and the last 70 yards were downhill. But, um, you know, asking, I think, those questions, I think you can learn a lot as to how things happen. And, and you know, even if you know where the deer's at, I always blood trap or try to. Like, those little things, I think, do make a big difference. Yeah, for sure. Even, even backing it up to the blood trailing taking your time and not just saying, oh, there's blood and just running through, taking time to process, okay, he's going this way. Why is he going that way? Like you said, it's all a learning process and something you could build on in the future. You know, maybe you shoot another deer in that area and think, oh, well, that buck went this way because this was the easiest way for him to get to security cover or whatever. Well, I'll tell you something about that which is interesting is blood trailing the deer. And I think this happens a lot, especially with, as food plotting grows more and more and more, is it's very logical to think, I shot a deer in a big green field. I'm going to be able to follow blood easily. Red, green, it seems, you know, polar opposites, you just follow. But what I found is a lot of the foods that we plant for whitetail, they're not stiff, right? Rye grain this time of year, clover, etc. Blood, you know, I don't know what the weight is per droplet, but it's thick. It's heavy. And what I've found many, many times is you shoot a deer in a green field and you can kind of get yourself excited because you go, wait, where, why isn't there more blood? Where's this blood at? If you find one droplet and you start moving some of the rye grain stalks for talking purposes, you'll start to see what happens. That blood weighs more than that rye grain can withstand. And it'll pull it down. You know, like a fishing, like a fishing rod that just a big bass hit, right? And it anchored down. That's kind of the same thing that happened. And you roll, push a little bit of it back, and you go, "Oh, look!" Now, brass because they're different. Those will hold up, and you'll see just like the juries always zoom in when they shoot a big deer over, you know, a brass field. And what happens? Well, the leaves aren't going to go anywhere. But something to keep in mind: those little itty bitty clover stems. A big droplet of blood hits that. It's going to bend that thing over, and now it's below. All of this other forage, and maybe a droplet of blood didn't hit until you move some around. You might notice a little bit more blood. So that's something that I've, I've picked up on over the years is um, 
like even with that buck, I mean, it was pretty easy to follow, but I still was like, gosh, I'm surprised there's not more blood here. Yeah. And I started kind of, you know, peeking in, and I go, yeah, there's a lot more underneath, if you will. Well, boys, that was what I wanted to get out of this podcast. So I really appreciate you guys coming on and and telling the stories. I'm going to try to scoot out and get a doe shot with my daughter if that's going to happen. But um, I'll I'll tell my story in another one, and uh, we'll break down that hunt coming up here soon. So any last parting words for our guests besides uh, the old Merry Christmas, of course? No, thank you. Thank you for having me on. That was a lot of fun. And uh, Merry Christmas to everybody. And uh, see us over on what, Habitat Chat. You know, we're having yes, a lot sir. of fun there and getting close to Habitat season. I'll be spraying some Tree of Heaven and uh, multiflora rows here in about uh, four or five days. So Merry Christmas to everybody. Jared, Brian, thanks for having me on. Glad you're able to make it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP land plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. I'd like to thank Exodus Trail Cameras, The Squirrel at NutPlanter.com, Packer Max Cultipackers, Afflictor Broadheads, Killer Food Plots, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. <laughs>